Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. In the private sector, if you don't change your view when the facts change, well, you'll get fired for being stubborn and stupid, said US presidential candidate Mitt Romney in 2011, misquoting Churchill, who, in turn, had been misquoting economist John Maynard Keynes. BBC bosses may have been pondering this very sentiment as they watched last weekend's weirdly silent 20-minute edition of Match of the Day. The almighty row with Gary Lineker over his criticism of the government's latest immigration policy ended, as we know, with the BBC U-turning, apologising and pledging to rewrite its social media guidelines. The issues between Gary Lineker and the BBC were for them to resolve, and I'm very glad, I'm very, I'm very glad that they did, and we're looking forward to watching Match of the Day again on our screens. Now, in the political world, U-turns rarely happen because someone has genuinely changed their view. More often than not, politicians are forced into them because they don't have the numbers to get their legislation through Parliament. Or maybe they just wilt in the face of ugly newspaper front pages landing day after day after day. Sometimes it's public pressure that does the trick, through protests or petitions or just dire opinion polls. Mostly, it's a fusion of all of the above. But whatever the reason, time after time in British politics, ideas cooked up in the imaginations of politicians and their advisers don't survive contact with reality and are swiftly ditched. And sometimes they result, as you'll hear, in lost elections, resignations, and rather a lot of egg on one's face. But that's not to say that all U-turns are bad. E.g., last week I was cycling to work and the heavens opened. I was only five minutes into my cycle, so I turned my bike around, went home and got on the tube. A literal U-turn, and a really good one. There I was, warm and dry, on the train. 100% the right decision. So, I wanted to make this episode to try and work out if U-turns are a sign that those in charge don't know what they're doing, or whether they just show they're willing to listen. To find out, I spoke to the people involved in some of the biggest and most consequential political U-turns of the last few years, and decades, to hear how things panned out. We made a pledge, we didn't stick to it, and for that I am sorry. It was really a masterclass in how not to do political U-turns. Downing Street has just confirmed that it will offer funding for free school meals. I have egg on my face, but no more so than every other member of the government. (laughs) Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. In comms terms, 
It was a complete disaster point. Liz Truss is preparing to scrap plans to remove the 45p top rate of income tax. I don't wake up at night screaming, but obviously, you know, you, you do reflect. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambre, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm looking at how to perform a political U-turn and how to get away with it. If you want to know how damaging a U-turn can be to a politician's personal brand, then you only need to think back a decade or so to the tragic tale of former Deputy Prime Minister and Liberal Democrat leader Nick Clegg. I remember a um, meeting around at his house in 2011 or 2012 with some of his closest uh, political advisers. This is David Laws, former Liberal Democrat minister. We join him at Clegg's house, a year or so into the Tory Lib Dem coalition. And we were talking about the challenges of getting back on course politically after the really difficult start to coalition government. And I remember, you know, we all encouraged him. We were all big fans of Nick. We all... Uh, wanted him to stay as leader and, and deputy prime minister. But as I wandered down the street with one of his uh, political advisers, um, this individual said to me that the poll ratings for Nick are really negative, particularly after the tuition fees thing. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for Nick to make a recovery because this has been hammered so relentlessly by our political opponents. It did damage to his personal brand and it was difficult to turn around. How far Clegg had fallen in such a short space of time. His performance in the 2010 election TV debates had led to Cleggmania, and his personal popularity was at an all-time high. His party won 57 seats and formed Britain's first coalition government since the Second World War. But after Clegg signed off Tory plans to treble tuition fees, despite promising before the election not to vote for an increase in fees, there was a swift and brutal backlash. People will judge him on this. If he votes against, that's the only principal position. After a day of impassioned debate, MPs have voted for the controversial rise in university tuition fees. Just be very clear, we changed it. We didn't go into the election promising to get rid of tuition fees overnight. Neither did we go into the election promising to triple them. No. There's no easy way to say this. We made a pledge, we didn't stick to it, and for that I'm sorry. It was really a masterclass in how not to do political U-turns. David Laws again. We should have changed the policy before the election, and then having not changed it, we probably needed a greater degree of continuity in government. The consequences of the tuition fees U-turn were not good, and if I could go back in time, I'd change them, even though I think that that wouldn't necessarily have led to a fundamentally different outcome in 2015. The Lib Dems faced almost total wipeout in the 2015 election, losing 49 of their MPs. Clearly the results have been immeasurably more crushing and unkind than I could ever have feared. For that, of course, I must take responsibility and therefore I announce that I will be resigning as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Law says he had reservations about his party's position before the 2010 election, but he thinks they should have stuck to their guns. We should probably have kept tuition fees where they were, not because that necessarily would have been the best policy for the country, actually, the the policy itself there was nothing wrong with, but the extent of the U-turn 
given the divisions within our party and the nature of the pledges given in the 2010 election. It was good policy, it was terrible politics. When did you realise it was terrible politics? Was it just before? Was it the reaction afterwards? I think I particularly realised, you know, the, the significance of the hole we were in when, you know, the party began to discuss its position on this in government. There were many people saying, well, this is the right policy to increase fees, uh, schools and early years should be the priority. Other people within the party were deeply committed to phasing out tuition fees completely. But if you haven't even got a coherent narrative amongst your members of parliament, you've got a real, real problem. And there was probably a moment there to uh, think again and actually um, to you know, fundamentally rethink our position. We didn't do so, and all of us at the top of the party have some culpability over that, including me. And Nick Clegg, are you still in touch with him? Do you still speak to him? Yeah, I'm still very closely in touch with Nick. I had lunch with him uh, a couple of months ago. Did tuition fees come up at your lunch? No, it didn't. I mean, uh, both of us bear the scars of them. We probably both have a similar view over what we would like to do differently if we had our time again. I remember this time well. I was at school, just about to go to university, and managed to get in just before the trebling of the tuition fees. But there was a lot of anger among students, most of which seemed to be directed at the Lib Dems rather than the Tories because of the broken pledge. That may be the most famous U-turn from that period in government, but it's definitely not the only one. Take the budget of 2012 as an example. You may remember it better as the omni-shambles budget. The opposition rebranding there really stuck. This country borrowed its way into trouble. Now we're going to earn our way out. And I commend the budget for the House. This was the budget when George Osborne announced plans to charge VAT on all hot snacks static caravans and church improvements. These were all swiftly abandoned after a brutal public backlash. Here's a bemused George Osborne speaking to Jack back in season one for an episode on budgets going horribly wrong, describing his most memorable U-turn of all on the pasty tax. What we were trying to tax was hot chickens in supermarkets and the word pasty never crossed my desk before before the budget. It was only after the budget. I was like, what do you mean it affects pasties as well? So, uh, you know, I, I thought I was doing rotisserie chickens in Sainsbury's uh, to try and save the uh, local takeaway shop uh, down the road that was paying VAT. I asked Osborne's close friend and former political advisor Danny Finkelstein about that famous 2012 budget. Danny's now on the board of Chelsea Football Club, so he asked me to meet him there. Sorry, do you know where main reception is? No, for the football club. Oh, for the football club, it's just down there on the right hand side. Okay. There were more than a few U-turns as I tried to find my way to Danny's office. Hope I'm just coming up to the main reception now. I'm just passing the tea bar. Hi. Not at all. I'm so sorry I'm late. So what did Finkelstein think about the pasty tax U-turn? The pasty tax was clearly correct, uh, but it caused a massive political row. And at a certain point, you decide it's not worthwhile persisting with it. So the government moved from the a good, a good position to a less good position, but probably a politically more tenable one. And were you advising George Osborne at the time to stick with it? No, it was, obviously wasn't tenable, so no, I didn't. You know, you have to be pragmatic. And one of the things that is very important in political analysis uh, is never to confuse the politically tenable position with your own position. 
right? It's very important that you don't say, because I think something is important or something's good, uh, everyone thinks that. Uh, and you've always got to make a distinction between those things. At the time, coalition U-turns over pasty, caravan and church taxes all seemed like a massive deal. In fact, they were just a flavour of what was to come. For after Cameron and Osborne came Theresa May. And with Theresa May, you'll remember, came the ill-fated 2017 election campaign. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. That was Theresa May after she had announced and then altered reforms to social care funding, dubbed the Dementia Tax by Labour. The policy lasted just four days of brutal headlines, painful interviews and plummeting poll ratings before a cap on payments was added. Although, as you heard there, the PM tried to argue at the time this was not, in fact, a U-turn. This must be the first time in modern history that a party's actually broken a manifesto policy before the election. For last week's episode of this podcast, I interviewed Fiona Hill, Theresa May's co-chief of staff during the election. She told me that unlike her colleague Nick Timothy, and unlike Theresa May, she was against the policy from the beginning. I made my view very, very clear. Take me inside that room. So you first hear about it and you try and convince Nick and Theresa? I didn't try and convince Nick because Nick was already convinced of his own argument. I tried to convince Theresa of my argument. And in the end, she wanted to do it. Did you feel like you were getting somewhere or was it just she took herself away and and made that decision? I felt like I was giving my argument, but I knew my heart of hearts, my argument wouldn't land. Okay. And was it was it a sort of was it tense in in that meeting? Yes. Yes. Very. How quickly was it clear that there was going to have to be some sort of U-turn? Within hours. Laura Kunzberg called and said the backlash on the BBC website from readers was incredible. We very, very quickly had calls into CCHQ from our own campaign teams across the country complaining about it. Mm. They were having a hard time on the doorstep. Um, And for me, it was a disaster point. In comms terms, it was a complete disaster point. In campaigning terms... It was fairly disastrous. There wasn't really anything good about it. There was no way of dressing it up and pretending that nothing had changed, as May attempted to do, only compounded the problem. An election that looked unlosable for the Tories suddenly became an uphill struggle. Less than three weeks later, Theresa May lost her majority. If there's a better example of how not to execute a U-turn, I think we'll struggle to find it. Now, sometimes, U-turns are pretty understandable. The pandemic, for example, saw the government lurch from one position to the next on an almost daily basis, in part because they were still learning about the virus. But it wasn't only on COVID that the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson kept changing course. The shopping trolley, as his former advisor Dominic Cummings labelled him, was forever veering from one position to the next. First, telecoms giant Huawei didn't pose a threat. Then it did. Then he wanted Tories to vote against a punishment for their MP, Owen Paterson. And then he didn't. And of course, one of the most famous of all. I haven't spoken to Marcus since since June, but I, I, as I say, I think that uh, what he's doing is, is terrific. 
During the first lockdown, when schools were closed, the government gave out free school meal vouchers to children from low-income families. In June of that year, they decided to stop this. Then, footballer Marcus Rashford got involved and the government found itself going toe-to-toe with the England and Manchester United star. It's actually a bit out of character, really, for me to open up and speak about something so close to myself. But I definitely feel like it was, it was necessary in order to get the messages across. Under immense pressure, the government backed down. That probably should have been the end of it. But then, a few months later, Boris Johnson's government tried to stop the vouchers again, which resulted in another campaign led by Rashford and, you guessed it, another U-turn. Downing Street has just confirmed that it will offer funding for free school meals. That is one in a long string of where the government gave in to enormous political pressure. John Whittingdale here, a government minister during this time. I wanted to know what it's like to have to speak up for a Prime Minister who keeps careering around, U-turn after U-turn in this way. You could see why they did so, because there was no doubt that it was causing a lot of problems. In some ways, you know, it, it, it demonstrates a lack of political nous not to have seen that this was going to be hugely unpopular and would be very difficult to sustain. Uh, you know, the government needs to choose its battles, and they need to be battles that really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that was an example of where there was a great deal of public pressure, uh, and you also had a very high-profile sort of celebrity figure backing the campaign. Uh, but uh, there has been no shortage of, of of times when the government has been forced to U-turn for those reasons. In 2020, you were a minister, and you voted against free school meals. And then the next month, after Boris Johnson had said, we're absolutely not doing free school meals, he then U-turned. Is that for you in that situation? Do you feel like you've got egg on your face? I have egg on my face, but no more so than every other member of the government yes. who, you know, who dutifully trotted out the line to take. Uh, I mean, the government ministers are expected to defend government policy. Is that frustrating for you as a backbencher and previously as a Secretary of State and Minister when you've sort of gone out and said something and then you're like, oh, actually... Yeah. Oh, I mean, for MPs, I think one of the things which uh, causes fury is if the government adopts a policy which is very unpopular and generates a lot of hostile emails or letters or comments and the loyal backbencher goes out and defends the government and says no this is the right decision to to do Uh, and then the government u-turns i mean that is really uh causes fury because the mp is left looking stupid so here we see another significant problem with u-turns they can create a lot of bad blood within political parties Loyal backbenchers and ministers defended the difficult decision to vote against free school meals, only for Johnson to change his mind and pull the rug out from under them. While most major U-turns are brought about by political pressure, from voters, the media, or from within a leader's own party, occasionally a policy is so, uh, extravagant that it causes real-world harm before it's hastily reversed. That was the case of the not-so-mini-mini-budget. Our growth plan has delivered all those promises and more, Mr Speaker, and I commend it to the House. Within hours of Kwasi Kwarteng's speech to the House of Commons, setting out the new economic direction he and Liz Truss planned to take Britain, 
The markets gave their verdict. Just looking at the pounds, and it's ticking every second, and it's, it's ticking lower. I wanted to get an inside view on the whole thing from one of Truss's closest allies in the cabinet, levelling up secretary Simon Clark. But he didn't reply to my texts. Fortuitously, though, I saw him at a Westminster event last week and managed to convince him that this interview would actually be a great idea. I'm so sorry for no, <laughs> tracking you down no, at an no, event. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's good journalism. Well... Advice, you know, don't ask, don't get. The first of Liz Truss's enormous mini-budget U-turns came late on the Sunday night at Tory conference when The Sun's Harry Cole broke the story that the government would be abandoning its plans to cut the top rate of tax for Britain's highest earners. I was asleep when his tweet was sent out, about 1am, in my hotel room in Birmingham, but I remember waking up to a barrage of texts as the Today programme covered the chaos. Sounds like Simon Clark, who is one of Truss's closest allies, found out the exact same way I did. Well, I woke up to the, uh, the, the drama and a missed call, I think, from Therese Coffee about, uh, you know, some ungodly hour of the night. This was ugly. Uh, it was, you know impossible to make out to be anything other than a disorderly retreat. This was too late in the day uh, and obviously also just of too fundamental a nature to be anything other than a pretty shattering blow to the government's authority. When you woke up and saw the news, was it like a kick in the stomach or...? Yeah, it was, actually. Uh, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no question that, you know, when you've been out there defending something, you know, and every politician from all parties will have at some point had that feeling where the ground just shifts and suddenly, uh, you know, you're left to uh, eat humble pie. Do you remember, kind of, did you immediately think, oh, God, they shouldn't have you turned on this? No, I mean, I'd been arguing strongly in the days ahead uh, of of conference that we should hold the line, that it was the right decision and that it would have been a great mistake to... to, to drop it, but obviously feeling had moved too far. And so I, I hold my hands up here. I probably, uh, you know, had missed the boat in terms of the, the way I executed U-turn. But some things are, as I say, very fundamental to the government's identity. And I didn't feel this was something we could trade easily, because once you give way on that, then obviously so much else crumbles uh, behind it. But, uh, you know, that's, that, that's politics. I got an inkling from another colleague late on the Sunday night. This is Sarah Ludlow, former head of strategic comms for Liz Truss in Number 10, in her first interview since leaving Downing Street. I kind of put two and two together and thought this feels like, uh, yeah, this feels like a change maybe coming. You know, conference itself is kind of quite a febrile time, I guess. You know, everyone in one place. It's often difficult to manage at the best of times and when things are going well, when you have kind of the whole parliamentary party there, you know, up till like the early hours of the morning, journalists everywhere. It was kind of clear to me from that Sunday morning on Laura Kingsberg, I remember watching that and sort of seeing her defending the policy and then kind of moments after you have kind of Michael Gabe vocally saying on a flagship political programme that he wouldn't be supportive of the policy. That additional detail, which will help give confidence to the markets, but more importantly, give reassurance to the public, that needs to be accelerated. And very briefly, you've been quite critical this morning. Are you trying to be helpful? Yes. It was becoming clearer to me that this was going to be untenable to kind of move forward. The party conference U-turn on the top rate of tax was just the start for Truss, of course. Within days, she would U-turn on almost her entire economic programme and on her choice of Chancellor to boot. I think from that point on it quickly became clear that we were shipping more water than you could bail out of the boat. 
Simon Clark again. I think I only really started to think that things were likely to end very unhappily when Quasi was dismissed as the Chancellor. When Jeremy Hunt came in and basically ditched the rest of the budget. Mm. I, I think you would call it the mother of all U-turns, really. And look, you know, it was really difficult and painful for Liz. And I don't want to make light of it now because it was a pretty shattering moment. And, you know, I mean, there, there were a lot of people who were not sympathetic to this. And that didn't help. Uh, although, obviously, uh, the buck stops, you know, fundamentally with the elected politicians, as it should be. I take my share of the responsibility. Uh, I absolutely, uh, as I say, stand by the broad principles of what we were seeking to do. Do you still dream about Liz Truss's premiership before the U-turn? <laughs> I don't. I, no, I, I, I have to say, I don't wake up at night screaming. But obviously, you know, you, you do reflect on, on things which you would have loved to have done. I think you'd be, you know, uh, you'd be unusual if you didn't. Does Sarah Ludlow think it was the U-turns that brought Liz Truss down? I just don't think that doubling down was was going to be possible given the way that the markets were reacting. So I don't really I don't think there was a, a different way forward in hindsight where if she just kind of fundamentally stuck to stuck to her guns that that, that would have ended uh, well. But I think if the full kind of suite of policies and of, of what you stand for, you're having to kind of reverse that as we saw. And, you know, as I said, I just don't think there is a way forward from that. Officially, Rishi Sunak is now in charge of the Tory party. But if the last few years have shown anything, it's how much power government backbenchers can have. In November of last year, Simon Clark himself put down a parliamentary amendment to overturn the ban on onshore wind turbines. The rebellion took on a life of its own when two of his old bosses and friends, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, got behind it. Sunak was forced to concede, agreeing to review the policy rather than face a damaging defeat in Parliament. OK, you yourself have, I think we can basically say you are responsible for forcing a U-turn. Ah, yes, I think I probably am. Uh, although, uh, I hasten to add that you can't do it alone, right? And, you know, all credit to those people who helped me. Sometimes you have to demonstrate that, you know, the numbers are where the numbers are, right? That was a big moment when Boris and Liz came on board because obviously they bring huge, you know, credibility to uh, any revolt. But in truth, it's just the hard work of making sure that you lobby colleagues. And slowly but surely you take your way to the magic total of 35. And 35 is effective enough to eclipse the government's majority. And no one ever wants to force a vote. And I was really clear with the whips who were in fairness, super conciliatory and uh, constructive, uh, you know, that we didn't want to have some kind of showdown, but just that, you know, this is where we're at. And when do you find out that there's going to be a U-turn? Do you get a phone call from the whips? It was in conversation with the whips. And do you, and do you sort of, like, punch the air with joy when says to you? I can't claim it was quite that, but there is a sense of satisfaction that something which I've campaigned on for years has now, you know, come to pass. Simon Clark makes it sound really quite simple with his how-to guide on forcing a U-turn for anyone listening who's tempted to try one themselves. For him, it was all about the parliamentary arithmetic, helped, of course, by those pesky former PMs still knocking around the Westminster estate. Coming up, what happens if you just don't ever turn, even when there's overwhelming pressure to do so? She was not somebody who would ever uh, completely abandon a policy she believed in because it was unpopular. 
And if you really, really, really have to do one, how do you do it without looking stupid or getting fired? Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. US President Lyndon B. Johnson famously said that the first rule of politics is to learn to count. And for any UK Prime Minister, counting the size of your parliamentary majority should give you a pretty good indication of how powerful your position is and how likely you are to be forced into a U-turn by rebel backbenchers. Now, in recent times, no Prime Minister has had a parliamentary majority quite like Tony Blair, a stunning 179 in his first term and a not-too-shabby 167 in his second. These are staggering uh, majorities within the House of Commons. This is Blair-era Education and Home Secretary David Blunkett. And that does lead to both certainty of carrying through your programme, but it also leads to a degree of stubbornness as well, because when you have a much smaller majority, your own backbenchers have greater power, and they can really bring that to bear where there is genuine pressure outside for a change of direction. And sometimes, um, under Tony Blair in those first 10 years, we got it wrong. By his third term, Blair's majority was a much more normal 60-something, meaning suddenly his backbenchers were capable of forcing the odd U-turn. And in 2005, they did just that, following a row about how long the government could hold someone on terrorism grounds without charge. I'd left the Home Office when it was decided that we should move from 14 to 90 days, the period in which someone could be held uh, without them actually being charged uh, on terrorism grounds. And uh, I thought that maybe 42 days was not unreasonable. I thought that 90 days was really pushing it. And actually, the in the end, the government backed off, but could have carried it just 
with the majority that they had at the time, which was 67. During the new Labour years, there were policies introduced that were later reversed once Gordon Brown had taken over from Tony Blair. This is a different type of U-turn, but a U-turn nonetheless. In 2004, Blunkett downgraded cannabis from Class B to Class C. It was then upgraded again in 2009. We had a different picture that we could paint for young people as to what was seriously damaging. So that if we said crack, cocaine, heroin were really dangerous Class A drugs and you shouldn't touch them, they might believe us. Whereas when we were saying, you know, cannabis is almost as dangerous as they are, and they knew it wasn't at the time, that, that later on there was the development of a much more uh, strong uh, element called skunk, uh, which wasn't available in 2003 when I, when I made the change. But it was clear to me that an education programme that was honest about the dangers would more likely succeed. So did you feel annoyed when there was a U-turn and it was then upgraded or was that an example of the facts changing? Well the facts had changed in the sense that skunk was on the market but I felt annoyed in the sense that the advice that was still being given was that the classifications were roughly right. I'm not in favour of legalising. Decriminalisation is an interesting alternative and so do you think it was the wrong decision? I, I think it was the wrong decision, but I think it was marginal. And do you think drugs should be decriminalised? I think there's an argument for it. Wait, what? Has David Blunkett suggested this to Keir Starmer? Could a Labour U-turn on drugs policy yet be on the cards? I've not been asked and I've not given my opinion on Home Office matters. If I were to do so, it would be take your time to have a proper fully funded inquiry to take uh, uh, the examples of what's changing across the world and properly examine whether they've created greater danger or whether they've made more sense and people are behaving sensibly. We've had a lot so far about U-turns, but what happens when you don't U-turn in the face of seemingly irresistible pressure? What happens when a Prime Minister just carries on regardless? To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. <laughs> this was the 10th of October 1980. Margaret Thatcher stood on a podium in front of her party at a Conservative conference and made this defiant speech, just one year into her reign, which set the tone for her premiership and ultimately her downfall. Margaret Thatcher famously was somebody who you know, believed in what was termed conviction politics. John Whittingdale again, who served as Thatcher's political secretary from 1988 to 1992. She wasn't somebody who when it retreated in the face of opposition. I mean, she actually sort of uh, uh, prided herself on carrying through her policies if she believed it to be the right thing to do, despite the opposition. Mm. And do you think that was good? Yes. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, during the uh, 80s when she had to carry through some policies which were deeply unpopular, but which in my view, certainly were necessary to achieve the transformation in the economy, which she did. 
But Thatcher's decision to push ahead in 1990 with a new local taxation policy, which she called the community charge, and which everyone else called the poll tax, despite overwhelming opposition, was Thatcher's great miscalculation. The Prime Minister refused to back down, despite literal riots on the streets. It had started as a peaceful mass protest against the poll tax. But then it turned ugly. Police accused a minority of around 3,000 troublemakers of mounting a ferocious and sustained attack on them. Less than two years later, she was gone. There were a variety of reasons why the party sort of felt that uh, she was no longer the right person to take them into an election. But the community charge poll tax was certainly one of the biggest reasons uh, because I think a lot of people in marginal seats believed that they couldn't win unless there were changes made to the community charge and she made it very clear that she wasn't willing to make changes so you know, the only uh, alternative really was to change the Prime Minister. Were you specifically telling Margaret Thatcher, oh, please just, please change your mind on this, please you tell? We were saying, we were definitely saying, I and several others, uh, that oh, no, if, if she would have to um, indicate that she would be flexible on the poll tax if she would have any hope of winning. Um, and that was a message which was coming back from you know, the parliamentary party very strongly. I mean, she believed in the policy, and you know, it didn't it didn't fit well with her to be forced to abandon it. But you know, we we weren't saying I think scrap it in its entirety. We were saying you've got to you've got to introduce measures which will take the sting out of it. Do you think she would have rather stood down and sort of keep to her principles than have to turn her policy? She was not somebody who would ever you know, completely abandon a policy she believed in because it was unpopular. Mm. Um, you know, she did carry through a lot of policies which were very unpopular at the time. Um, and she prided herself on that. Look, clearly no politician likes to U-turn on a big policy especially one they wholeheartedly believe in. It's embarrassing. It looks inconsistent. It's a sign of weakness. But sometimes, for all the reasons we've heard, it's just inevitable. So what's the best way to execute a U-turn? How exactly can you get away with one? Well, you you anticipate uh, where the ultimate landing zone is going to be and you try and move into that space. Liz Truss's former cabinet minister, Simon Clark again. By doing that, you, you maximise the chances that you'll secure at least part of what you were initially aiming to do. If you plough on with a policy which is definitely doomed uh, to come a cropper at some point, then the likelihood is that when it does finally crash, that you will lose everything you were hoping to do. What do you think about changing your mind in politics? Well, it's probably the hardest thing to do. Uh, uh, and it's something which, of course, this place loves because... The drama of a government U-turn is always something which uh, excites, you know, comment and attention. It's blood in the water. Very often it's equated with weakness. And uh, the reality is, of course, there are good U-turns and bad U-turns. And one's done from a position of uh, weakness and one's done from actually a position of the strength to recognise that actually there are better ways forward. And what's a good U-turn? A good U-turn is one I agree with. (laughs) 
For Theresa May's former right-hand woman, Fiona Hill, the trick is to get it done quickly and move the conversation on as soon as possible, something her team found impossible in the white heat of a general election campaign. In government, if you do a U-turn, you've got time to have some clear blue water between the U-turn and doing something next, which puts you on top again. You don't have that space in a general election campaign. What you announce is what you announce. And is there any sort of leak it first, announce it to everyone, say sorry? What's the best thing to do? I personally think if you're doing a good U-turn, which is that you still have the capital and you're still fairly popular, um, you just do it quick and you let everyone know and then you move on. And then you find something else that you knew you were planning on doing, which really was and is a good idea, and you get that out there as quickly as possible so that that basically is the new memory that everyone has of your, your governance. We've heard about a fair few disastrous U-turns today. There's a good reason for that. Politics is usually most memorable when things go horribly wrong. But what if we're thinking about it wrong? What if, stay with me here, government U-turns are actually a positive thing? What if Prime Ministers nimble enough to change their minds should be celebrated? Truss's former aide Sarah Ludlow thinks we could all learn a little something from the private sector. In other walks of life, acknowledging and learning from failure is a good thing and seen to be a good thing. So particularly in the kind of corporate environment, leaders, CEOs who change their mind, accept and learn from failure are seen as good leaders. Um, you know, there's a, the business mantra, particularly in tech, for example, you know, fail fast, fail often. That is not something that transcends across into the political world. You know, we don't always welcome political leaders to sort of show vulnerability and, and a, a willingness to admit mistakes. Danny Finkelstein certainly thinks we should all be a little more willing to change our views. I would value actually ending up with the right solution more. And I think it can be quite destructive to insist on consistency above the ability to change your mind, to adapt to new circumstances, or even just reflect that you were wrong. Now, almost every small change in an announcement might be considered a U-turn. And the fact of it is portrayed as if it was humiliating and um, of itself a defeat. And this re- leads to probably an undersupply of necessary changes of opinion, in my own view, which maybe I'll change at some point. <laughs> but here's David Blunkett again on the value of consistency. I've seen people U-turn and make it a, a real example of how they've listened and they've responded either to public opinion or to a new set of facts and information and they get something out of it. I don't necessarily agree with people like Danny Finkelstein that it's a really good thing and should do it more often. I think we should think these things through before we open our mouths and before we set the policy out so that we've done much more thorough work on what will work as well as whether it will fulfil the direction, the ideology, the values that we we, we lay out. Um, Because otherwise people start to think that you're all over the place. Most voters are not most of the time following very closely every detail of politics and are generally aware only of the outcome of something as we get close to a general election. Maybe they notice a certain sort of weakness, but what they're more interested in is where you end up. Whether you believe U-turns are to be welcomed or avoided at all costs, 
one thing is clear. There are definitely good and bad ways to pull them off. What's also interesting is just how many of the earth-shattering U-turns we've heard about today came from budgets or from election manifestos like the pasty tax, the 45p tax, the dementia tax. These are policies usually decided by a very small group of people without consultation and only exposed to sunlight once they're broadcast to the world amid great fanfare. Maybe that's the best tip of all if you want to prevent a U-turn. Discuss your ideas openly, guys, rather than cooking them up in back rooms in Whitehall. So, on that note, if any government insiders listening to this want to run anything past me, any top-secret policies you'd like to air, I'm available on WhatsApp, Twitter and email. Why not hit me up? Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please follow us wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes too, like Alva's look at what went wrong for Liz Truss from earlier this season. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. (laughs) 